as we continue this summer, it's still summer, right? Isn't it summer till like September the 20th or 21st or something like that? Does that sound about right? So we are, uh, we are in a summer series working through the book of the Psalms. I, I share with you early on in this series that the book of the Psalms is, is a one book. We often treat it like a, a book of unrelated poetry, like you would take a, a book of poetry by one author and and one poem really has nothing to do with the poem before it or after it. But that's not the way the Psalms are assembled. They are assembled in such a way as to point us to Christ. Jesus tells us this in Luke 24. If you had read the law and the prophets and the writings correctly, then you would have known to expect a Savior who would come from heaven, who would live, who would die, and on the third day be raised and then ascended uh, for the gathering of his church and the preaching of the gospel for the repentance and the remission of sin among the nations. Jesus says all that is in the Old Testament, and it's in, also in the book of Psalms. We find ourselves today in Psalm chapter 11. And again, it is a psalm that is written for the choir director, which as we've talked about, that's in the Hebrew, that's one word, which in the Greek translation was translated telos unto the end. In other words, David is not just giving instructions to a, a song director. He's telling us that this is, he's writing through the lens of his life about something greater that's going to happen through a greater king in a later time at a time that he's calling the end. And since Jesus has come and fulfilled the Old Testament, we, li we are living in the last days. These are the days when God is gathering a people for himself through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And so, it is a psalm of David, and it's about David, but it's also about a greater David, a king who is to come. Having said that, would you read with me Psalm chapter 11? For the choir director, a psalm of David, in the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They make ready their arrow upon the string to shoot in the darkness at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold. His eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked. And the one who loves violence, His soul hates. Upon the wicked He will rain snares. Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright will behold His face. Would you bow with me? Father, help us in the moments to come to comprehend what is the, the height and the width and the breadth and the depth of Your Word. Spirit of God, we ask that, that You would open our eyes, that we would see the beautiful things within Your Word this morning. That You would... Take your word and apply it to, to the areas of need that are in our lives. Areas that, that we may already be discerning or areas that we may not even know yet, God. Expose to us who we are in light of your word. And then change us and make us more like Christ. We ask it in his name. Amen. Growing up as a freckle-faced, buck-toothed nerd whose parents couldn't afford braces until it was too late. Life in public school for me wasn't always that pleasant. Kids can be pretty cool, cruel, you know. Now they call it bullying. Back then it was just learn to deal with it. <clears throat> One bully I remember in particular was Kenny. 
He was a grade or two ahead of me and would keep nagging and picking on me, and I dreaded every time he was getting to get on the school bus just a few stops after me. He picked on me for no reason. I did everything I could do to avoid him. He eventually challenged me to fight him, but I never did. From an early age, my parents had taught me to turn the other cheek, so I learned how to protect my face if I absolutely had to, and I also learned that walking away almost always works, and it allows the young Christian to keep his testimony. Parents don't teach that very much anymore, but I'm glad my parents did. Now, don't get me wrong, I wanted to whoop Kenny's tail. And I'm to this day quite certain I could have, but my parents taught me there's no reason to fight when running will do, and in the context of public school fights, they were exactly right. But when it comes to the real enemies of life, the things that seem menacing and threaten to crush us or intimidate us, and undermine our bold and confident pursuit of the Lord and His mission, the, the sin which so easily entangles us, the fear of death that some of you are still living with, the, the things that prevent you from going all in for the mission of God. David shows us in this psalm that there are some things we should fight for. There's some things we must fight about. And we must keep fighting for the Lord and His mission despite enemy attack, even when it doesn't seem practical. Psalm 7 shows us that when we come under enemy attack, we must not abandon the mission. We see that in verses 1 through 3. And secondly, we must live as those who have taken refuge in the Lord. First, we must not abandon the mission. Specifically, we must not abandon it when the wicked want to undermine the life and the mission to which God has called us. Now, David is speaking likely about people who want to undermine him and the and the kingdom, for us, it's anything that wants to sabotage you in your walk with Christ as you pursue the advance of His kingdom. We don't know what opposition that David is facing, but he is clearly aware that it exists. He begins with, Lord, I'm taking refuge in You. How about you this morning? What are you facing that makes you want to give up on giving yourself entirely over to Christ and His mission and His purposes in the world? What, what has you living as a half-hearted man or woman? What has you living a double-minded life, showing up on church, at church on Sunday, radically committed, so you think, to the things of God, but on Monday through Saturday, compromising what you said on Sunday that you wanted to be about? Take a moment this morning and let's just be so bold as to write it down. What, what is preventing you from giving yourself wholly over to Christ and His mission? Maybe you need an example to prompt you this morning. I'm afraid to read the Bible with my family because it will be awkward at first. I'm afraid to let God make me a generous giver because I don't want to outlive my retirement income and I don't think He'll provide for me. I'm afraid to speak truth because I don't want to offend anybody. I like being liked. I'm afraid to really love people because I have been hurt by people in the past. I don't want to get really plugged into a Sunday school class and be vulnerable and talk about the things that are challenging to me because somebody might turn around and hurt me. And I've lived my whole life afraid of being hurt rather than being open and vulnerable and letting Christ use me. I'm afraid to be honest about my struggles and ask for help. I hear a sermon on Sunday and want to live for Jesus, but I also want to be accepted by the world, and I never quite have the courage to follow through. 
I'm afraid to confront the apathy in my life. Are any of you apathetic this morning? You just come to church Sunday after Sunday because that's what you do. And the pastor challenges you through sermons and there's opportunities to volunteer and committees to serve on and Windshape and VBS and all sorts of things that you could have participated in, that you could have gotten involved in, that you could have asked a question about how God might want to use you, but you just never got around to it. You know, there's always good stuff to do Monday through Saturday. There's always good stuff, good excuses. But you know, one of the greatest enemies of the best is the good. We can settle for doing good and acceptable things and never really got off the sidelines and give our lives over to Christ and His mission. Whatever it is this morning, write it down. Write it down. And now let's attack it. Let's confront these enemies of the faithfulness that God wants from our lives. Let's, let's confront them as David did. David is facing a major challenge to what God wants to do for his people through his leadership as king. His advisors want him to take a break and flee to the mountain and maybe let the challenge blow over. And that's why he says in verse 1, How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to the mountain? They they then ask him in verse 3, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? In other words, if the society around us begins to crumble, David, then what good is it if you're king anymore? You better just fly to the mountain and hope this thing blows over and take a pass. Longman says this, foundations are likely those of society and probably suggest a disintegration of the institutions that maintain social order. In other words, what will we do if the kingdom loses its king? You better think about yourself for a moment here, David. We know you want to honor the Lord, but if you don't run away from the enemy's arrow, verse 2, then what will come of the kingdom then? What will we do then, David? Little did these advisors know that one day a king would come and establish his forever kingdom by taking the enemy arrow himself. We have a king who did not flee for the fear of the wicked. But instead, he showed the wicked they are truly powerless by taking the arrows, the darts himself, in order to give us life. And this king's name is Christ. Do you know if Christ had waited for the ideal conditions to fulfill his mission, that the mission would have gone unfulfilled? Christ came to squelch the fear of death. He came to cancel out the arrows of the enemy and of the wicked. And sometimes... All the oppositions that, that is out there, you just got to march straight through it and trust that God is your refuge. So often, we privately insist that we've got to be comfortable in order to be faithful. That if conditions aren't perfect for us, that God must not be in it. He must not be calling. If all the things don't line up exactly like we want them to line up, then we really aren't being called to serve God yet and to be faithful. We'll just wait till He rolls out the red carpet and makes it perfect. If He didn't do that for His Son, do you expect it's going to happen all the time for you? And yet, that's what His advisors assume. If society as we know it breaks down, how will I function? What will my kids and my grandkids do? And I submit to you, I, I meet people like this all the time. When I worked at Southeastern Seminary raising funds for that seminary, I met some very successful and wealthy businessmen. I met one man in particular who was making a contingency plan for when everything went south in the United States. He was building his house on an island. 
He was setting up offshore accounts. He was doing all this stuff. And he, he would talk about Jesus and America and we're a Christian country. And, and, but if it falls apart, what are we going to do? And what, you know what he was going to do? He was going to get a one-way ticket to an island and live out the rest of his life there. And I said, Mr. So-and-so, what if God wants to keep you here to be a proof that the Jesus you've taken refuge in is a Jesus that you can trust in good times and in bad? What if He wants you to be the witness to the watching world that Christ is still on His throne no matter what happens in our country? He'd never thought about it. God is winning through people who are faithful to His King no matter the conditions they face. David has little patience for his advisors who want him to flee like a bird to the mountain for protection. He says to his advisors, how can you say that? Don't you know that God wants to do something for His people through His King? Do you really think that this adversity that's out there should stop me? The foundations, verse 3, that David cares about are the foundations of the Lord's righteousness, verse 7. He wants to be upright where it matters in his heart, verse 2. And faithfulness to do what is right in the Lord's eyes, no matter how costly, is the evidence of an upright heart. Being upright in the heart means maintaining a commitment, get this, maintaining a commitment to God's mission in the world, even when it could cost us being shot through with the arrows of the wicked. For the blessed are the pure in heart, and they will see God. And if that's our confidence, no matter what this world throws at us, we know the end is going to be better than the present. You know, Jesus, the greater king and the greater David, was also tempted by his advisors to play it safe, to sit it out, to abort the mission. Do you remember in Matthew 16, this little interchange between Jesus and Peter? Jesus began to show his disciples that he must be killed and be raised up on the third day. And what did Peter say? God forbid it, Lord, this will never happen to you. But he turned to Peter and he said, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block for me. You are not setting your mind. This is so key. You are not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's. Whatever has you setting your mind on God's interests, but, not on, but on man's interest, is an enemy to faithfulness to God in the world in which we live. If you want the easy road, you will always be able to find well-meaning people to encourage you. These are David's inner circle. This is David's group of advisors, just like Jesus and his disciples. And he's been walking with them on the mission. You can always find well-meaning people to encourage you to stand down or to give up on the hard-won victory that God wants to give in your life. Whatever it is that you wrote down five, ten minutes ago, God wants to get victory there. And oftentimes, victory doesn't come easily. Christ did not even let certain death derail Him from doing what God had sent Him to do. And through His resurrection, we have been given confidence to deny ourselves and our own interests for the interests of Christ and His kingdom. Though the enemies have loaded their arrow, the bow is already ready, the text tells us. And they're ready to shoot at those who are upright in heart under the cover of spiritual darkness. It is time. It's time, North Roanoke. 
to take the fight to our fears for the sake of our King and His kingdom. Whatever's got you sidelined, it's time to get off the bench and get in the game. We must live as those not who take flight like a bird to the mountain. We must live as those who have taken refuge in the Lord Jesus Christ. Though the wicked seem to have the upper hand and his advisors tell him to flee and to run or play it safe, our king does not look to the mountain, but to the Lord, who is king and reigns from where? You see that in verse 4? His advisors are telling him to look to the mountain. But Psalm 121 says, I look to the mountain, where does my help come from? It doesn't come from the mountain, my help comes from the, the Lord. The Lord who's over the mountains. The Lord who made the mountains. He doesn't look to His enemies. He looks to the Lord. Have you ever... Y'all have one of these? You ever put in a location and... You know, let's say you're out by Smith Mountain Lake and you put in your location and you got zoomed in way too far and all you got is blue all over your screen. It looks like you're in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. You're like, well, where am I? I, I thought I was... At Daryl's house, but all I see is water. And so you're zoomed in so far that all you can see is the water. Now some of you are like that with your problems. You're living a challenge. Whatever it is you wrote down, whatever God brought to your mind, whatever He's convicted you of this morning, and all you see every day that you wake up is the sea of your problem. And some of you need to get that little screen and you need to do what David did. You need to just pinch it on back in. And you need to see your problem in light of who Jesus is. You see, when you start to zoom out, suddenly Smith Mountain Lake doesn't look so big. And you keep zooming out and you can't even see it on the map. Because it's a great big world. And God who made this great big world is in heaven and over the heavens. And that is where He is. So some of you this morning need to stop being so zoomed in on the things that want to undermine your faith. And you need to remember to look at the omnipotent God in whom you've placed your faith. We know from verse 1 how this psalm is going to end. There's a king who is coming. In the end, the good end, who will not flee his enemies. He will not cower in fear. He will do the job that God commissioned him to do because he has once for all taken refuge in the Lord and in this King whose name is Jesus there is nothing to fear. Taking refuge in the Lord, finding protection in the Lord is what the Psalms have been urging us to do over and over again. Chapter 2, verse 12. Chapter 5, verse 11. Chapter 7, verse 1. And taking refuge in the Lord is what the watching world, what your kids and your grandkids and your great-grandkids need to see you do. They need to see you find your protection in the Lord. Our community, I'm convinced, will awaken to the reality of the worthiness and the realness of Christ when we prove that we have found eternal protection in Christ Though we live, excuse me, through how we live in the face of adversity, opposition, fears that would paralyze us without our sure hope in the accomplished work of Christ. 
this sort of trust in the Lord is possible because He is holy in His heavenly temple, verse 4. Longman says this means that the Lord has made His presence known among His people. David faces his enemies, and we face our enemies as Jesus does. Not by seeking the praise of men who have no interest in the kingdom of God, but by pursuing His presence in His holy and heavenly temple. You know, there's no greater confidence to be found in life than in being rightly related to God. Then being able to zoom out of your problem and look to the heavens and know that why, because of what Christ has already done and the Spirit who's been poured out, that you can be rightly related to the God who made it all and is above it all and is dwelling in His temple. By the way, this is written before the physical temple is built. God has a, a holy heavenly presence that is available and accessible to His people at all times. And when we take refuge in the Lord, we get the Lord Himself. We trust that faithfulness is better than flight, the flight of a bird, because God sees the sons of men. Do you see that in verse 4? And He loves righteousness, verse 7. And those who are upright will behold His face. We will be with our God forever and ever. The eternal reward of righteousness is always greater than the momentary pain of persecution. Whatever's threatening to derail you, undermine you, make you tuck tail and run like a bird to the mountain, remember, you will behold the face of the Savior in whom you've taken refuge. Though it hurts for a little while, the promise of Scripture is that the eternal reward of righteousness is always greater than the momentary pain of persecution. No matter what comes to us in life, if we take refuge in Christ, we will behold Him. And when we've taken refuge in Christ, we are freed from the pressure that comes from relying upon ourselves, our ability to maneuver the system or to please everyone. You know, there's always going to be somebody who's faster, taller, smaller, more articulate, more charming, but our aim is not to please them. It is to please our King. Our confidence is not in our knowledge of our enemies, but in the Lord's love of righteousness. We commit ourselves to Christ the righteous King, and we can be confident that one day God will see to it that the wicked receive the violence they intend for others. Do you see that in verse 5? The wicked are violent. It's the same word used to describe the behavior of the men and women before the flood of Noah. Violence does not refer to the violence of natural catastrophes or violence pictured like in a police chase. It is a name for extreme wickedness. Did you know that the wicked will even use the appearance of godliness as a cover for their wickedness? They operate, verse 2, under the cover of spiritual darkness. Their consciences have been numbed to the soul-darkening impact of their attacks upon God's King and His people. Did you know your sin doesn't care if it undermines you? Did you know there's people in your life who are so opposed to God and what God want, the victory God wants to get in your life, they don't care what they do, have to do to stop it or undermine it or derail it? In Acts chapter 20, Paul warns about this in the church. There's going to be wolves that come in from outside, and there's going to be wolves that spring up within, and you've got to be careful about that. There are, there are 
enemy, the enemy wants to create subterfuge and attack and he wants to undermine and they will operate under the cover of darkness. We can get so wrapped up in worrying about the opposition that we're like, what can we do? What can we do? What can we do? What does David do? What does Jesus do? He says, God will take care of it. God hates it. God will take care of it. And if God's going to take care of it, I'm not going to let it divert me. For soon, Jesus says in Luke 12, 2 and 3, a day is coming when whatever is said in the dark, it will be heard in the light. And what you have whispered in the inner rooms, it will be proclaimed upon the housetops. God will take care of it. The Lord knows. How is it that God can take care of it? He knows everything. He's above everything. He sees everything. His eyes see, verse 4, and this means Hebrews 4.13 is correct, that no creature, whether righteous or wicked, is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. And what an account it will be. Look at verse 6. We, 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 we read the words rain, fire and brimstone, burning wind and cup. David takes the major judgments of the Bible and he puts them together in one verse the rain reminds us of the flood of Noah. The fire and the brimstone reminds us of the sudden destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. The burning hot east winds remind us of the judgment of Jonah at Tarshish. The cup reminds us of the wine cup of the wrath of God that Jesus drank down for those who belong to Him but is still being poured out on those who do not trust in Jesus. And God hates those who love violence. God's testing of the wicked, verse 5, proves the justness of their condemnation. But it doesn't end there. Do you notice this? There's a testing of the righteous and the wicked. He's testing the wicked and proving that their coming condemnation is deserved, but He's also testing us. He's testing those who have taken refuge in the Lord. Look at verse 5. The Lord tests the righteous. In other words... The temptation that you're facing to back away from the mission that God has given to you is a test. God can allow a trying situation in your life, in your work, in your home to refine you. The adversity and the fear and the anxiety and the excuse or whatever it is that's leading you to want to just quit on God and His mission is an opportunity to be refined. For the faith that we profess with our mouths to be the faith that we proclaim with our lives. So I want to ask you, what did you write down about 20 minutes ago? Now's the time to pass the test. Whatever stands in the way of you this morning becoming a radical, generous, praying, hospitable, Spirit-filled, church-loving, happily married or happily single, no-holds-barred, crazy disciple of Jesus on mission with other disciples, I want you to be reminded of this truth. Those who have taken refuge in Christ are not afraid to take the test because we find our life and confidence in the One who has already passed. Jesus already faced down the enemies. He's already nullified their effect. He's already been crucified, buried, and raised for you. 
So though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, we do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul because we have taken refuge not by flying like a bird to the mountains but by going to the Lord who made the mountains. We have found true life in a risen King who already stared down death and won and one day soon we will all declare that the refuge we've taken in this King was sure and steadfast, and all who are upright through faith that is proven and tested, we will behold our Savior face to face. So this morning, don't take flight like a bird. Take the fight to whatever's threatened to undermine you. Pass the test. Fight the good fight by resting in the One who is already fighting for you. Would you bow? Our Father and our God, we thank You. We thank You for King David who showed us and pointed us to a greater King who even in the face of the most horrific death imaginable did not back down, but instead for the joy set before Him, He set His face like a flint to Jerusalem where He knew what was awaiting Him. And God, He did it to make us His people, to purify us and to cleanse us and to enlist us and set us apart for His mission. So God, I pray that whatever victories need to be won today, that You would win them as we look back to the cross and ahead to the face that we will behold and take refuge in the Lord. In Jesus' name, Amen. This morning, I invite you to stand as we sing a hymn of response. I don't know what your need is. Some of you might just be dealing with some stuff you need to deal with. You might want to pray about whatever it is you wrote down. We invite you to come. Some of you may want to partner with a church that believes knowing Jesus makes all the difference. Whatever your need, we invite you to come as we sing.